Good morning, church. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Uh, this weekend, of course, like Kirk said, it's, it's Memorial Day weekend. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. It is a day that serves as a reminder to us of the sacrifices that so many have made in our armed forces in defense of our nation's freedoms. Traditionally, freedom is a hallmark of this country. We have the Statue of Liberty symbolizing freedom. We have the American flag, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, and, and the Bald Eagle, and the Liberty Bell, and Mount Rushmore, and the National Anthem, and, and so many other symbols and, and documents or substances, whatever you will, that promote this idea of freedom. And as an American, though many of those things are being challenged today, I'm, I'm grateful for them as I know all of you are as well. I love the freedoms that we share in this country. But I also believe that our Americanized vision of freedom has blurred our vision of true freedom. And that's what I want to, us to look at today. At the very beginning of Jesus' of Jesus's earthly ministry, at the very beginning of his public ministry, he made it clear what he was coming to do. He had come into Nazareth, and upon entering the synagogue, um, on the Sabbath, he was handed the book of Isaiah. Now, this narrative is unfolding in Luke chapter 4, but he was handed the book, and, and he began reading from it, and Jesus spoke, speaking from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And upon reading all of this, Jesus closed the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. And, and all of the eyes of the people in the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus said to them that today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus came to bring freedom. True freedom has been his mission. And in our text today, we'll see how true freedom can be found. Leading up to our text today, we see Jesus in a debate with the Pharisees. We're in John chapter 8 now. We see this debate with the Pharisees, and, and throughout that dialogue, Jesus makes some explicit claims about who he is and what he has come to do. From verse 12 to verse 30 of John chapter 8, Jesus makes the claim that he is from heaven, and he makes that claim seven times. And being from heaven, Jesus claimed that following him was the only way to find life. And he looked at the Pharisees and he said in no uncertain terms that they cannot get to heaven on their own. Sin stands as their barrier. Look at verse 24 if you're at John chapter 8. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. At this time, the religious leaders we're in a sort of impossible religious maze, if you will. And I got this illustration from a commentary. But they were, they were looking for the end of this maze that was marked eternal life with God. But every turn they made in this maze, they encountered an obstacle. It was the obstacle of good works. It was the obstacle of observing all of the right religious traditions. It was the obstacle of, of moral living. Every turn they made in this maze, it presented them with a new obstacle. They were looking for the end of the maze when in reality the end of the maze didn't exist. But Jesus 
says he came to knock down the obstacles. Jesus came to make a way, and he tells the Pharisees that he doesn't merely make a way, but he himself is the way. And we read then in verse 30 that as Jesus spoke all of these things, many came to believe in him. Now this is an interesting verse. We're going to read our primary text now, but just hold on to the notion that not everything may be as it appears. So our primary text is John 8, verses 31 and 32. So if you would look at those verses now with me. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The first thing I want you to see from this text is the mark of a disciple. The mark of a disciple. I listened to a podcast episode earlier this week. It was really quite fascinating. Every once in a while, the host of this podcast, who is himself a Christian, will invite a guest to his show that would believe very differently from him. And he does this intentionally. He, he, now, understandably, many of the guests would be hesitant to join him on his podcast, but he has a rule that he holds to in inviting these guests. The podcast host is not allowed to argue with them. The podcast host is only allowed to ask questions. So as, as he asks questions and he gets answers, then he can ask additional questions to kind of dig to the deep, deeper meaning. Well, he recently had Rain Wilson on his podcast. Now, if you are unfamiliar of that name, perhaps you are familiar with the character Dwight Schrute on the TV show The Office. The Office is probably on in my house more than, more than my wife would prefer. Anyways. <laughs> Rain has recently released a new book on spirituality. And that was ultimately what led to this interview. Rain subscribes to what is known as the Baha'i faith. It's a religious system that essentially teaches the supposed worth of all religions. And the host asks Rain a question. He asks, what would it take for you to become a devoted follower of Christ? What would it take for you to go all in on Christianity? And Rain responds, for me, I view myself as a Baha'i and a Christian. So I do love Jesus Christ with all of my heart, and I love his example, I love his words. So consider myself converted in the sense that I do adore and love Jesus Christ. And I do believe that the only way to the Father when Jesus was alive was through him. Then I also believe that the way to the Father when Muhammad was alive was through the teachings of the Holy Quran. And now I believe that Baha'u'llah is the newest incarnation of the light. The interview highlights an important point. Hearing the gospel and knowing facts about Jesus does not guarantee salvation. While we often describe faith as accepting Jesus, it's essential to recognize that mere acceptance of facts about Jesus is insignificant. James reminds us that even the demons believe, yet their true beliefs do not lead to salvation, similar to those who believe true facts about Jesus but fail to find salvation. 
So we return to John chapter 8, and Jesus is talking to this group of Pharisees. If you continue, he says, if you abide. That first word is critical to our understanding of this text. The question before us is, is the faith of the Jews genuine? Remember, John tells us that many have come to believe in verse 30, but I had you hold on to the notion that it might not be what it seems. And our, and our first clue is how Jesus responds, if you continue. It's a conditional clause, right, which means that something is true only if something else is true. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Or we could say the negative, if you do not abide in my word, then you are not truly my disciples. Now, does the condition make one a disciple? No, the, the condition does not make one a disciple. The condition proves that one is a disciple. Now, as we continue reading in, in John chapter 8, we see that the faith of these Jews is not genuine. Jesus, continuing to talk to the same group of people, in verse 34, he calls them slaves to sin. In verse 37, he says, my word has no place in you. In verse 44, he tells them that they are of their father, the devil. In verse 47, he tells them that they do not hear the words of God because they are not of God. And in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. The question we must ask of this, of this text is, is, do any of their actions, any of their characteristics reflect a believer? Reflect a believer, reflect a disciple? And the answer is clearly no, which raises an implication for us in our understanding of this text today. Jesus is speaking to those who think they have faith when in actuality they do not. Jesus is speaking to those who think they are free when in actuality they are still slaves to their sin. It's a vitally important topic. It's an urgent topic. Many people profess Christ to be their Lord. Many people say they are Christians. Rain Wilson said he was a Christian, but what is a real Christian? What is a real disciple? This is a question you must be able to answer for yourself as well. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians wrote, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves Paul is urging the Christians, the Corinthians, and by extension us, to reflect on our lives. Examine yourselves, test yourselves, evaluate whether you truly believe in Jesus Christ and are living in accordance to the teachings of the faith. The question of authenticity, I think it resonates with all of us. It's a recurring theme in our lives. It leads to discussions about the genuineness of, of other people's faith. We often find ourselves asking, is this person truly saved? Are they a genuine follower of Christ? These, these conversations are common, right? They arise perhaps when we're thinking of our children, maybe even our spouse, they, uh, our neighbors, or, or even our colleagues who, who profess to be Christ but make questionable life choices. We might doubt the faith of those who attend church sporadically, leaving us unsure about the genuineness of their faith. These uncertainties, these questions, they're, they're universal, they affect us all. We, we have these conversations, if not with one another, at least in our own minds. It's an urgent question. It's an important question. It's important to recognize that not everyone who claims to believe in Jesus may genuinely possess true faith. 
We cannot assume someone's faith based solely on their verbal declaration. Yes, we rejoice in those verbal declarations, but at the same time, we don't make the mistake of just simply assuming. That would be unwise. This understanding holds significance because we should be aware of the actual spiritual condition of people who claim to be followers of Christ. That knowledge is crucial. It is so that we can appeal to them, if necessary, to repent and find genuine salvation. Now, people seek Jesus for many reasons. Everybody wants a better life. I don't know anybody who said they wish they had a worse life. Maybe they come to Jesus looking for that better life. Maybe they see this community of believers, this this church, and they desire the fellowship that this group shares. Maybe they are tired of their bad habits. Maybe they are scared. Maybe they desire heaven. There are many reasons why somebody may proclaim faith in Jesus. Those are easy reasons for somebody to profess faith in Jesus. But Jesus said that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And there are few that find it. Jesus' public ministry saw this clearly as well. We read statements like what we saw in John 8, verse 30. Many came to believe across all the Gospels. Many came to believe. One commentator said that tens of thousands would have expressed belief in Jesus throughout his public ministry. But when we get to the upper room, does anybody know how many we see there? Now, I'm not saying that that's all there were, but 120. False faith is everywhere. It was common in Jesus' day. It's common in our day. And just a few verses later, after Jesus proclaims that the gate is narrow and the way is hard, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so we return to our question. The critical question you need to ask of yourselves and even others. What is a true disciple? What is a true disciple? And am I a true disciple? Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, verse 31, that the only thing that proves you are a disciple is if you continue in his word. The only thing that proves true discipleship is a faith that endures. The mark of a disciple is endurance. The mark of a disciple is perseverance. So how can you tell if a person is a genuine disciple? The word is perseverance. Highlight that verse, underline that verse. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So what does it mean to continue in my word? Well, for one, it means that verbal or mental acknowledgement is not enough. It means a life of obedience to everything that God commands. It's a life that seeks to honor him first, reflect him to the nations first. It's part of the Great Commission, and I'll acknowledge that I was convicted when I was reading these verses myself, and I saw this with new clarity, but I sometimes think we fail to see this part in the Great Commission. If we could split the Great Commission into thirds, we like the first third and we like the last third, but we kind of skip this middle part. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we miss this middle part, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. 
obedience to the word of God over the course of your life demonstrates the genuineness of your faith. That obedience does not result in faith. It does not result in salvation. It is the proof of it. It is the proof of a saving faith, a a faith that endures. It does not mean that you do not sin. Our best behavior could not be good enough, but it doesn't have to be. Christ has already died and made us right before God. It does not mean that you live perfectly. It does not mean that you never make mistakes, but what it does mean is that you hate your sin. You hate when you sin against the holy God. You hate the temptation that your heart feels when it's pulled towards those sinful things. You hate stumbling, but because of the work Jesus did, you love God. And in gratitude to him for for the grace you received through your salvation in perseverance, in obedience, you endure to the end. I want to provide you with some questions that I hope will help you discern the genuineness of your faith. Does the word of God serve as the nourishment for your souls? Do you consistently engage with it? Does does your commitment to Jesus rank high enough on your list of priorities that you dedicate yourself to deep Bible studies? The word disciple means learner. God has spoken Are you being faithful to understand all of the scriptures? Do you observe the the growing evidence of godly virtues in your life as you are immersing yourself in God's word? Is there a noticeable transformation in your character, in the reforming of your habits? Can you perceive a shift in how you think about time and relationships and money and your speech? If your answer is no to any of those questions, Perhaps you should test your faith. It could be reasonable to scrutinize the authenticity of your faith, and I realize it might be a little taboo for a pastor to cast doubt on the faith of his congregates. I'm not trying to necessarily do that, but I'm not doing you any favors if I don't ask you to ask these questions of yourself. This is not easy faith. This is not easy believism. This is a faith that is all in from beginning to end. Hebrews 3.14 says that we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. We hold firm to the gospel, the good news that God has given life to our dead souls, that Jesus Christ came to redeem those enslaved to sin, that we were once those enslaved to sin, but that Jesus broke the bonds and he gave us his spirit and he gave us new life and he wrote his law on our hearts, giving us a spirit and the power willing to and desiring to obey all that he commands. And so we abide in God's word. We hold to all that his word teaches. We hold to what he teaches us as we sit under the preaching and teaching of his word. And what we find is, is that as we abide in the word, we find that we're abiding in the son. And by extension, the father. 
And we are transformed from one degree of glory into another until the day we enter glory to see Jesus face to face and we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's what we cling to. His word, the totality of everything he teaches, the good news of the saving work of Jesus and resting in that, living in that, dwelling in that, every day deeply rooted in Christ. And by God's grace, you will persevere to the end. So far, we've seen the mark of a disciple. I promise these next couple go much quicker. The first point I recognize has been a bit weighty, but we are turning a corner in the text. The mark of a disciple is perseverance. Next, we consider the experience of a disciple, the experience of a disciple. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth. The concept of truth is popular. Some claim that there is no such thing as truth. Now, ironically, that in and of itself is a claim to some sort of truth. It's, it's false, but it's still nonetheless a claim of truth. People desire the truth. People don't seek out ignorance, though they may find it everywhere. I don't know of anybody intentionally seeking out ignorance. The quest for truth resonates within the hearts of people. It's a force. It compels us to seek answers. However, many are searching for the treasure of truth in all the wrong places. They yearn for a truth that liberates them, truth that frees them from confusion and, and lack of wisdom, from struggles, from their troubles, from their dissatisfactions, from their unfulfilled dreams. We have libraries and classrooms and courtrooms and more, all dedicated to the pursuit of truth. The problem is, for unbelievers, even when the truth smacks them right in the middle of their forehead, they reject it. Now I'm speaking, of course, of the truth of who God is. And we read in Romans 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. On Friday, I sent a text to a college student here at West Haven who was attending K-State. I asked this young man if he had experienced this in any of his classrooms at K-State, if he had experienced this suppression of truth in the classroom. And he said he had a teacher who continued to be obsessed with COVID, and that's not the point, just, that's just the basis of the conversation. But he would, this teacher would simultaneously do these two things. One, say it was evil, hold on to that, evil to do anything other than follow the guidance of the governing authorities while he would simultaneously mock God. This was evil, this was not. The unrighteous will suppress the truth. But here's the wonderful experience of a disciple. You will know the truth. Knowledge of the truth is a wonderful thing. It, it's the joy, it's the thrill for the learner, for the disciple. But what the word know is after here is something much deeper, something much more personal than just knowledge of facts. My beautiful, beautiful wife is sitting in the front row here. Many of you know her. Many of you are very good friends with her. You share a lot of stuff with her. She shares a lot of stuff with you. You're good friends, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But you all do not know her like I know her. 
I know my wife in a way that you do not know her. And she knows me in a way that you all do not know me. And while that's an imperfect illustration, the knowledge that disciples have of Jesus and of the truth is that type of personal, deep knowledge. Returning to that podcast with with Rain Wilson, something else struck me as I was listening to it. Rain would have done this just subconsciously. He would have had no idea, recognized he was even doing this. But as the podcast host would ask questions, Rain would repeat a phrase over and over and over and over again as he responded. Rain would say, a question was asked and Rain would go, I think, and then finish his statement. I think, and finish his statement. He had no assurance. Rain had no assurance, but for the disciple... We have a personal, intimate, deep knowledge of the truth. We know what is true. That knowledge might be weak, but we still know it. Which leads us to the question, what is the truth? The word the is significant. John could have said you will know truth. Instead, he said you will know the truth. And so first and foremost, the truth is not a philosophical subject. It's a person. Later in John's gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And there's this wonderful little phrase that we often skip over, I think, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21. It simply says, truth is in Jesus. Truth is first and foremost a person revealed to us by the spirit of truth. John would tell us this in John chapter 16, that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit consistently directs our focus towards Jesus. The Holy Spirit embeds the gospel deep within our hearts and brings about the transformative power of Jesus' completed work into our lives. The Spirit's task is to reveal and enable us to embrace the beauty of God's grace. Through His presence, the Spirit testifies to the truth of Jesus Christ and brings comfort through the word of God. You can't abide in facts. You can't abide in data. You can abide in a person, a person who is the truth. The truth is Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. It's the gospel, the good news, the assurance of our salvation. And notice that the only pathway to the truth is through the word. If you continue in my word, you will know the truth. Jesus promised us, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Christian, are you giving yourself over to the word or to the false teachings of the world? And you all know Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Are you trying to light your path based on the wisdom of the world or the teaching of Scripture? On Friday, I saw a Facebook reel 
um, of a guest speaker at Concord Baptist in Jefferson City, which is where Pastor Mike served before being called to pastor this church. Um, and this guest speaker, he was making a different point, but it fits in well here as well. As kids, we learned a song. See if you can finish I know you can finish it with me, but finish it with me. Jesus loves me, this I know. Two things. I'm convinced that there's no greater thing than hearing the church sing. And number two, what was that word? Bible. How quickly we forget where it is we learn such foundational truths such as God loves his children. God has spoken. If you're waiting for God to speak to you, open up your Bible and read it out loud. It's from his word that we learn the truth of who he is, of who we are, what he has done for us. We should be learners of God's word. God's word is our greatest treasure. David says that the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord are more desirable than God. They're more sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I'm not saying to live your life like a hermit, completely disconnected from what is going on in the world around you. Rather, I'm saying give yourself over entirely to the serious and prayerful study of God's word. Let it seep deep into the marrow of your bones and you will bear the fruit of a disciple. Your life will be transformed by the word of Christ as the truth itself is brought to life within you. The mark of a disciple is perseverance. The experience of a disciple is knowing truth. And our third and final point is the glorious consequence. The glorious consequence. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As we abide in God's word, we are enlightened by the truth, which leads us to being blessed by the truth. Now remember, the truth is first and foremost a person. That's why in, in just a few verses later, Jesus would say that if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. If you remember, I read from Luke chapter 4 at the beginning, Jesus described his ministry, and he said he came to set free those who are oppressed. It's a promise that in and of itself is not the conditional statement. The conditional statement was in verse 30. If you abide, you know the truth, and then this is the promise. If you abide, you will be made free. It's a promise, freedom. It's not a freedom like that which is promised to Americans. It's a true, everlasting, eternal freedom. And so we might ask, free from what? John tells us throughout his gospel and his letters that, that we are free from condemnation. Being in Christ means that disciples of Jesus are free from any form of guilt or punishment as their sins have been forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus and they stand justified before God, free from condemnation. John tells us that we are free from darkness and the power of the evil one. Disciples are, are freed from the dominion and control of the evil one, finding refuge and strength in the victorious authority of Jesus who has overcome the power of darkness. Jesus tells us that we are free from fear and death. Disciples find hope and their eternal life in the assurance of Christ's victory over death and his constant presence 
with them. Disciples have the glorious blessing of being freed from all of these things. But I believe more glorious than what we are freed from is what we are freed for. We are freed to do the will of God on earth. Rather than following our own earthly, fleshly pleasures, our greatest joy, our greatest pleasure is to do the will of God. Before coming to faith, we couldn't obey, Ephesians 2 2 tells us. It says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it was within those trespasses and sins that we walked, that we lived our lives. We lived in the lusts of the flesh. We were living to indulge the desires of the flesh and the mind. And by nature, Paul says, we were children of wrath. And then, of course, verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Paul is saying we've been freed from the old way of life. And then he says this in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We were once slaves to us, slaves to sin, unable to obey. Now, in Christ Jesus, we are freed to joyfully obey. The main point is this. Biblical freedom is the freedom to joyfully do what we ought to do. Are you still bound in chains? Are you burdened by the weight of your sin? Are you lost? Are you wandering? Are you hopeless? I'm not talking to those who are weak. We are all weak. For those who are weak, if you continue to abide in the word, he will make you strong. He promises to do that for you. I'm talking to those who have truly never given their life over to the Lord. And about this time, I usually hear Bibles closing and people's eyes begin to shift and minds begin to engage in whatever is coming next. But I urge you, don't do that quite yet. Like Paul urged the church at Corinth, I urge you to examine yourselves. Are you a true disciple? A true disciple is one who abides in the word of God. Does that describe you? Do do you delight in God's word? If your answer is no, the charge is as it is every week. Repent and believe. It's to call upon the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And you might be asking, how is it that Jesus can save me? This text calls us to to continue to abide, to abide in God's word. Well, Jesus continued in God's word perfectly. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father perfectly. Perfectly. Jesus obeyed the will of God perfectly. Jesus knew the Father better than anyone, for He is the Son. And Jesus took on full humanity. Being sinless Himself, He died the sinner's death. He died the death that you and I all deserve to die. But by the power of God, He was raised. And having been raised, He's been given the power of eternal life to those who would believe. This morning, 
He is calling you to respond to him by his word. The call is to repent and believe. The call is to turn from your sins and turn to Christ. And if you have not done that, I urge you to do so today. If you have done that, then you are free. What are you free to? You are free to abide in his word and to joyfully do all that we ought to do. You are free to offer your life joyfully in the service of God's kingdom. I'm going to ask Afton to come and pray. Afton's our pastoral intern. But as he's coming, if you have turned to Christ for the first time today, I would love to speak with you. Perhaps you have questions. That's what Pastor Kirk and myself are here for. We will be in the foyer at the conclusion of this service. We would love to talk to you. Perhaps um, you have questions about next steps. Perhaps you've not been baptized by immersion after salvation and would like to take that step. Perhaps you have been baptized but would like to join this church in membership. We would love to speak to you about that as well. There are a number of ways you can contact us. Like I said, Kirk and I will be in the foyer at the conclusion of the service. You can fill out that Connect card. You can scan the QR code. If you do one of those items later this week, somebody from our office, Pastor Mike, Pastor Kirk or myself will be in contact with you, um, but we would love to have those conversations with you. Church, thank you for your attentiveness as I sought to preach God's word. Afton, would you pray?